Hello and welcome to the Word on Wellbeing podcast, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss everything going on in the world of mental health, well-being, and current affairs. My name is Chris Hartley and we are very, very fortunate to have the fantastic MP for Luton North, Sarah Owen, with us today. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Chris. It's lovely to join you today. Thank you very much. Well, I'm I'm so excited to have you here, particularly because I have to say, and maybe I should have mentioned this earlier, when I was doing a bit of research, I discovered that you grew up in Hastings. Yes, yeah, I did. I grew up in Hastings. I've still got quite a lot of family in Hastings. So that's quite amazing, uh, quite coincidental, because I live in Battle, which is literally just up the road from Hastings. And I, I grew up in Sussex, obviously work in London, but you know, Hastings is an area I know very well. I, I've actually, in a previous life, I was a, I was a teacher, so I've taught in quite a few of the schools in Hastings. So it's a it's a bit of a, it's, it's a funny place because you've got some real kind of, it's very gentrified parts of it. And at the same time, you've got some real, you know, real poverty, real social issues there. I remember teaching in one school over in uh, sort of in some of the, I suppose, suburbs. And, you know, some of the kids, this this is a seaside town. I mean, I should say, if you don't know Hastings, Hastings is very much the quintessential, one of the quintessential seaside towns, Victoria, beautiful Victorian seafront piers, you know, all these lovely sort of parades and bits and pieces. Um, and I remember talking to some of the t- some of the teachers and they were saying that, you know, there are kids in this school and they're literally within, almost within sight of the sea and they've never been to the seaside. And for me, I mean, that that is just, I mean, shocking, absolutely shocking. I mean, I suppose that reflects my own kind of privilege but certainly for me, it was one of the things that um, really kind of pushed me to kind of become, I suppose, politically active and also kind of think about what is it I want to do? I, I want to help people. I want to make a difference. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting place, Hastings. Uh, but unfortunately, obviously, you know, like so many places, particularly at the moment, struggling quite a lot. I think there are some distinctive parallels, I think, between Luton and Hastings, even though that they are ge- geographically a good few hours apart. Um, the The kind of, I think... The similarities there, particularly around child poverty, people talk about the affluent south and the affluent southeast, and actually there are real severe pockets of, of deprivation. There were areas of Hastings similar to Luton that you have over half of the children growing up below the poverty line. Oh, wow. Um, oh, yeah. And that for me, you know, wherever you go, that for me is should be a driver for real change. And Obviously, one of the things that I love about Luton is is the diversity. And mm. you're starting to see that sort of diversity spread, I think, along the South Coast. And I, I think yeah. that our communities are all the richer for it. But when I was growing up in the 80s, it was quite a different place, Hastings. Um, it, mm. was, it was, you know, very, very white. I think I was possibly one of the only mixed race children. There was maybe two or three of us in a class or in a whole year group. And so you do children tend to look for difference and so that's quite a different experience whereas I really hope that my um, daughter growing up in Luton won't have necessarily that sort of experience it will be a much more rich cultural diversity that she'll be surrounded by but you growing up in battle you probably just went to Hastings to go out well I'm saying that battle doesn't have any nightlife but it really (laughs) doesn't I I should say that I I mean I've only lived in battle for a couple of years I actually grew up a little bit further to the west in a town called Helsham, which was uh, an old market it's town. It's nightlife in Helsham. There is no life, nightlife. It was, uh, but similarly to, um, you know, very similar in some respects to, to Hastings in the sense that it was an old market town where there was very little business and industry and therefore there was mass poverty. So for a town of its size, you know, there are a lot of issues there, a lot of drug drug use, a lot of violence, um, which are linked to that, that kind of lack of opportunities. And I, I think you're completely right, you know, not only saying, you know, I, I completely, 100% believe in diversity uh, enriches us, it makes things better. I mean, I mean, you go into a sort of, um, I know it's a very sort of sort of middle-class thing, but sort of if you go into the supermarket and the variety of things there are now is unbelievable. And part of that comes from that kind of diversity of culture and things like that. And I think it just, things things get better. When we have more ideas, more people, more different backgrounds, I think it just enriches us. I think you're completely right. Um, but I also agree. Sorry, no, I was just going to add as well that I think your point there is what Keir tried to, Keir Starmer tried to talk about, I think in his speech this week, was it this week? Everything goes very quickly. When he says you shouldn't have to leave your hometown to get, a good job Mm. and ultimately everywhere that we look outside of big cities there is a limit to how much you can earn there is a limit to how much you can progress and that shouldn't really be the case so I think whatever we look at in terms of the future the way that the economy is rebuilt after this pandemic it's not just about equality I think for the for individuals it's also equality for the the whole country Mm. 
that, uh, that that expression leveling up has become so key, I guess. Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's always been something that's been talked about, but certainly sort of the, the government are obviously very keen to hold on to their red wall seats. And part of that will come, you know, part of that comes from that, that promise of leveling up. One hopes that if we take party politics out of it, that actually trying to find a way to to make things fairer but i suppose we also have to think about as, as you've already mentioned you know the southeast is seen as being this very wealthy area but at the same time i i would imagine there is also a, a, a well there are i know for a fact there is a large a large proportion of people living as you said below the poverty line or in difficult situations so it's, it's about finding that way to ensure that everybody is able to access you know has the opportunities to access good education uh, proper jobs and things like that and i do wonder whether I suppose uh, one of the things we will come on to is obviously talking about the, the, the big, I'd say elephants in the room, but it's not really the elephant in the room. It's sort of the elephant in the world at the moment, unfortunately, with the, you know, the pandemic. But one of the things perhaps that will come out of the pandemic is that more jobs will be moved out of London because more people can work from home. And that will bring hopefully more money into sort of, you know, the villages and towns and things like that, as people realise they don't necessarily need work in London or don't necessarily need to be living in London or commuting into London. I mean, that would obviously have a knock on effect on London's economy particularly amongst some of the, um, you know, sort of retail and things like hospitality. Um, so there needs to be a sort of a way of balancing that out. But it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I do hope I do hope there is a fairer chance for, for more people across the UK, because I think for too long it's been too focused on on, on particularly on London and the South East. I think that that's absolutely right. And it is a fair, I think it's fair opportunity yeah. because there isn't the opportunity it's not a case of if you just continue plugging hard and working hard and pulling yeah. up yourself by the bootstraps that this is going to suddenly magically come right. And it's because the system is so imbalanced that that challenge, that would be a challenge anyway, is almost an impossibility for too many people. And, that, and that's just not right. I think Lisa and Andy was talking about towns and the need to support our towns and invest in our towns, not just in infrastructure, but in in kind of the social infrastructure as well. So when we talk about levelling up, mm. I'm really keen that levelling up, the levelling up agenda doesn't just stay within kind of economic terms and jobs and skills, that we also look at health. So the yeah. pandemic particularly has exposed huge inequalities that were already there, but now no one can actually ever deny that those inequalities, inequalities exist. And they have dire consequences, absolutely dire consequences. Um, and we need to address those. So when, I, when we hear about levelling up, I want it to be across our society, not just in certain parts that we talk about levelling up in, in health, for example. Um, so at the moment, I sit on the Health and Social Care Select Committee. And even before the pandemic, black women are five times more likely to die during childbirth in the UK. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. And that is just it's a, it's a horrific fact and there are many multiple reasons for this but I know that we can't wait until a change of government to tackle this um and obviously these sorts of issues get worse during a pandemic yes they do and so when we talk about a leveling up agenda I don't want it to just be about jobs and the economy it needs to be about every part of people's lives I think you're completely right there in the past obviously there's there's when various governments have often talked about leveling up or in whatever terminology and things like that and often it comes down to the idea of education and things like that but I think in some ways the kind of the, the general kind of belief or practice has been those in villages and towns across the UK they they get an education they go to university and then they leave where they are and go to London or go to the southeast and things like that and I just that that, that just doesn't work and I think you're completely right but at the heart of it is about leveling up those communities completely so there are the jobs there is the uh the opportunity because why would you know as a as you know we're both parents we want the best for our children if we look at the areas that we grew up in and think well it's fine for me but I don't necessarily want the same thing for my child well we're going to leave so it's about thinking about that long term and and part of that you're completely right is health um I mean the yeah it's been you know I mean the last year has obviously been horrendous not only from the perspective of people's physical health obviously with with the coronavirus and the various bits and pieces around that long covid obviously um but also its impact on people's well-being and mental health and how that is is there, an, is there a new crisis there is it is it something which is perhaps it was already there um oh. as, as a society you know i think certainly sort of you know, we always hear these stats about people in the UK working longer hours for, you know, and, and doing less kind of home life and all this kind of jazz. And it doesn't surprise me at all, you know, and it, and I think we can both recognise that. And also that sort of element of when you're kind of in that environment, even in even 
in a progressive environment where they talk, you know, where we talk about ensuring kind of equality and ensuring kind of that work-life balance and things like that, it's very difficult. It is very difficult. So I, I do wonder whether, you know, th- there are things that we can take forward, but there are also, as you said, very clear indicators that there are some real underlying problems within the UK that need to be dealt with. Huge. I, I think absolutely right on the mental health side of of the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic I think we are going to see a huge mental health challenge across the age groups so particularly people who are older and more isolated I know that Age Concern Luton are doing fantastic kind of outreach work whenever I do community zooms there's a lot of older people who have become digitally savvy or were digitally savvy already who are really connected like my grandma's 95 and we can speak to her through the Facebook portal that she has sat in her front room because she knows how to use it um she's always embraced kind of new technology she thinks it's absolutely marvelous oh wow that's that's amazing yeah she she is quite a legend um (laughs) and there's a reason why my little girl is named after her um she She's also like staunch labour. So even in their 90s, they were having um, campaign rooms out of their their um, their home. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's lovely. <laughs> That's really nice. Um, but she'd, she'd said something to me, which made me more appreciative, I think, of the technology that we have. So she said, if this was going to happen at any time, now is the time for it to happen. Because she, she remembers a time where there was one, what she called a wireless, mm. um, in a street. And then she said she remembered there was one TV in the street. And now she said that she can see us. It's She said it's not like any replacement, but she said it's the next best thing. And yep. so I'm taking the little wins where we can. I think you're completely right there. I, I, you know, I think that's, that is, it is, uh, I mean, it's a horrible situation. I, and I think we, we all know that, but thank God for tech that's allowed us to, to have those connections i know sort of from my own life my i've unfortunately I, you know i've talked about this on this podcast before my my father-in-law was uh taken well my, my, my father-in-law had a very aggressive form of dementia and before christmas unfortunately he was uh, having to he was, had to be put into a sort of hospital to look after him and you know if, if it wasn't for things like this we wouldn't be able to support my mother-in-law by the, the rest of the family you know him to, to the extent that we can it's I mean it is you're completely right it is completely amazing um, what it's allowed and how quickly it's become I hate this sort of expression the new normal and things like that but how quickly sort of things like WhatsApp and Zoom and Teams and everything else have become so ingrained in our lives and part of it and and I think there's good there's, there's a lot of good there and as I've already mentioned about the idea of kind of supporting you know people in the workplace and things like that and having more of a balance though as we talked about earlier obviously there's the problem with meetings and things like that but <laughs> I think part of our part of our work at Meridian Wellbeing and I guess you know is about supporting and ensuring that, that everybody can access that, that technology because obviously you know uh, one of the things that again has become quite stark is that there is that digital exclusion uh, and it is across ages. You have children who don't have access to to the internet, so they can't do their, their you know their schoolwork. You have older people who are isolated and don't have access to the internet, and therefore can't have that kind of connection, which keeps so many of us going. So it's trying to find a way that we can ensure that everybody does have access, and that it is not only not only it's it's affordable, but also that the you know the tech technology is working. And I mean, I think we all know about problems with printers and things like that. And you know, when you're by yourself, you don't want that to be happening. So having that kind of community around you where you can kind of engage and things like that. It's been so such an important part of our work, supporting uh, vulnerable people and helping them to, to get that access, which is which I suppose in some ways I know I know for myself that some, in some ways I take for granted how uh, access, you know, how um, how much I can access and actually other people aren't so fortunate. So I've been really sort of um, proud to be part of part of this work. I think it is it, absolutely essential that you know organizations like Meridian exist for lots of different reasons but particularly this reason around the digital divide mm. um, and connectivity because where I think we saw the government and state fail in this aspect really charities and communities and organizations have really stepped up to the challenge and schools as well schools massively so I think that the digital divide was a huge problem before it before mm. the pandemic yeah. so for many children for every child I think that a, a decent computer and decent access to the internet is as essential as a book and a pen now yeah. like it's just every part of school life I remember going to school and having one computer for the entire school it was before the internet and I remember this kid saying to me what what, what did you use a computer for <laughs> and I was like he was like what's the point of a computer without the internet 
and I couldn't remember, like, apart from the fact that it was to practice typing. Uh, oh, really? I yeah. can vaguely recall some sort of, like, text adventures text. or something like that. I mean, I think I was, at, so I was in primary in the 90s, early 90s, so I can vaguely recall this big sort of grey monitor thing with some sort of text 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 adventures on and things like you know kind of like learning to spell yeah and the text was green like this yes. fluorescent kind of green yeah. neon color exactly yeah that. it was really strange and I do remember like getting that excitement of being you get like your 20 minutes to be on yeah 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 um but it is now like it's not just a novelty it's now like an essential part of everyday kind of school life even before the pandemic I know teachers were using google docs like children would be and students would would hand in work that way And similarly, for the older community that were not digitally connected, they miss out on huge deals, um, like the cheapest kind of electricity, kind of gas, all of those insurance, all of those offers, online exclusives. That's such a good point. That is, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but that is such a good point. And actually, it's something I hadn't even considered, but it's something I really completely agree with because I, I, I find utility companies and the way they, they work completely ridiculous and completely, I mean, you can't treat customers as effectively subsidizing new customers. I mean, that's just, that's just mad. And yet that's exactly what, they, you are so right there. And I, I mean, that's almost discrimination against older people who don't have that access. I completely hugely, that's, hugely. That's, So that inequality existed already. Hmm. If looking at a group of people who do not have um, access necessarily to spare cash, um, it continue, especially like the waspy women who have already mm. had their pensions yep. you know, taken away from them or large sums of their pensions taken away from them. And then for them to be charged over the odds for a service that everybody else can access more cheaply, I think is just a gross inequality. And then when you see the pandemic, you have a different different type of inequality there which mm. is an inequality to be able to connect and you know so you've got the emotional but also the financial impact of it so when i say that the pandemic has exposed inequalities that are already there like they've also they've also exasperated and furthered the the, the inequalities and i really hope that we can we can move forward in a more equal society so that we are better prepared as a country mm. but also for for people's lives um to, to be there and we talk about the digital divide, but in Luton in particular, one of the big issues is is if a child does not have access to a decent laptop or, or internet, that's not likely to be the only issue. Housing is a huge problem, and yeah. quite often you will have larger families crammed into two-bedroom flats. Wow. And I mean, so even if you yeah. do get a school or a charity or an organisation gets the connectivity for them, gets the digital device, you haven't solved the problem of the fact that they are probably sharing a bedroom with siblings who are trying to also learn at exactly the same time. Mm. Um, they don't have the space. And I'm really concerned that when we come out of this, that you know, it's not about catching up because they're still learning, yeah. but it's about making sure that they are they are secured on, into their future. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely we, agree. And then we I tackle com- that problem long-term. I, I, I completely agree. And certainly, actually, it makes me... Something I hadn't really reflected upon, actually, is in my own life, you know, I grew up in, you know, my mum raised us, you know, we were on free school meals, three sons, and, you know, my mum worked stupid hours to, you know, because to put food on the table, put food on the table and look after us and everything else, because, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's what mums do. They're amazing. And I think, God, if we'd been going through this where she would have to, you know, she was working in hospitality. So, you know, she would have been in trouble there. And then, you know, having to sort of homeschool three boys at the same time. I mean, it would have been a nightmare. And yet there are so many families who are probably in that situation, if not worse. And there needs to be more consideration. And there needs to be, as you said, and I completely agree, a longer term consideration. I mean, it's one of those sort of things that, I mean, you know, it's there's like so there's so many things that we can sort of raise here. But one something for me, I'm very, very passionate about. And it genuinely makes me very, not only uncomfortable, quite angry is I don't feel that in a uh, developed nation or whatever we are that people should have to depend on food banks I, I think that's a failing of the state that's a failing of the economy and party politics aside regardless of one's polit- particular beliefs I think if if people are having to having to rely on food banks there is a real problem in how societies work and that's not a criticism of those individuals because they that's not their fault and it's not a criticism of those like the Trestles Trust who provide this food because they do fa- a fantastic job it's this it's there's something wrong fundamentally with society where that happens 
and there are and there's so many examples like that and they've just got worse they've oh, just got worse and massive, I, massively massively worse and I would love to live in a society where food banks just aren't needed and that charities and organizations aren't providing the the actual bare essentials for somebody to live their life that they can they can add something else mm. they could do some other work um, that is core to their aims and to their values and to their beliefs but all the while we don't have that safety net mm. for people to be fed and particularly children to be fed yeah. They're going to step up. They're going to say, right, well, as a community or as a charity or as an organisation, we're going to have to fill that because otherwise people will go hungry. And that is a horrific and I think a really damning indictment of the way that our society and our economy is is run at the moment. There are some people that have got incredibly rich during Mm. this pandemic, while the majority of people have got poorer. And there are a number of people that were making ends meet before the pandemic who are no longer making ends meet and who are having to reach out for support when they have never had to reach out for support before. To give you an example, there was a woman who got in touch uh, kind of around summertime. So when we were seeing fewer cases Mm. and she was running an informal food bank out of her garden, front garden, and she started feeding like 10, 20 people that she knew. That became a thousand people. Wow. I mean, that's and as, just... And as the is... weather got worse, she couldn't do it from her front garden. Her entire front room had been taken over with like like storage for foods and cans and things. And mm. she was broken, absolutely broken. She just said, I don't want to stop because I can't stop. So my team have been trying to support her to either become part of the the organized kind of food mm, bank network yeah. um, so then she'd get actual support of how to run it how yeah. to like link into other support networks within within the town as well but that's the level of need yeah and i mean it's i mean don't get me wrong i people I have no problem with people earning money and making money and things like that. But at the same time, we should not have families. And as you said, particularly children starving. That That is just not acceptable to me. And I think regardless of any political party and any government, I, I couldn't live with myself. I was in a position of power. I knew that to be the case because it sh- there's something wrong. It's just not right. And I think that regardless of whether one's a parent or not, it's just, it. you know what I mean? It grates, it goes against the grain. And I, I really, really do hope that, that we learn from pandemic we learn about some of the great things about communities coming together and supporting each other because i mean there are so many examples of that you know we're one of the things that we're involved in is the uh, covid health champions and that's just individuals um, within barnet in the area and i think obviously other uh, boroughs and other uh, districts and things like are doing similar things where it's individuals coming together to support um, the rollout of the vaccination by sharing information and support, you know, and and, and uh, in promoting that and promoting kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of good work that's going on and things like that. And there's so many examples of individuals, you know, putting their own time and money, uh, you know, on, on, you know, to, to, to help others. And I really hope that continues going forward. And there are things that we need to learn that mm-hmm. there are that, that, because there are real issues. And I, I feel like there's so many great things about about the UK, about this country. But I think they shouldn't blind us to the fact that there are clearly problems as well, you know. And I think as uh, kind of a, as I don't know, however we like to think of ourselves as being, you know, as adults or anything, I think we should reflect on that, Mm. um, you know, and try and move forward and think about, you know, what we need to do and what we need to take forward. Because I mean, going back to something you mentioned earlier, you know, we are, I've said this so many times, we're so fortunate to have the NHS. You know, it is a fantastic thing and it is rightly called the sort of the national religion because the NHS is an, un- an unbelievable thing, in the, you know, particularly in this day and age where we look at other countries where they don't have a health service, um, you know, where individuals have to choose between taking their child to the doctor or putting food on the table. I mean, that's just, you know, unbelievable. And yet, as you mentioned, you know, there are clearly health inequalities. There's clearly an issue there and it's not criticising any the NHS or anything like that to say there's an issue here and we need to work on that. And, you know, and I do hope that we can move forward and we can move past some of the rhetoric and we can move past some of the, uh, the point scoring on all sides that's, that's, and, and find a way to be, to be better, I guess. I don't know. I there are lots of ways. There. No, I think there are lots of ways in which we can. So my mum always says, she always says, always room for improvement. And I think that there is, that is absolutely true. Like as much as everything that you have mentioned is a really good thing it's a really like beautiful thing about our country um and our communities that that kind of come together that recognize a need 
the whole town in Luton came together to feed kids in October for the the half term. You had the football club, you had individual kind of um, takeaways and restaurants, you had charities, you had mosques, you had churches, you had everybody working together. And that's a beautiful thing, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. I completely agree. Those children shouldn't be hungry in the first place. But then secondly, like, should charities, businesses and organisations have to to, to fill that void no they shouldn't a large number of them now also from working families mm. um who are in work poverty that's yeah. not the way that this this that we should be seeing our economy there, there is always room for improvement and so i've been criticized about you know saying we should be learning lessons now somebody criticized me on twitter saying you know that's political point scoring and I said, that's, it's not like i, I don't want to wait until this pandemic is over Mm. to learn the lessons of the last year because we can and on the health select committee we are already having a covid lessons learned inquiry and that's cross party that's good it's really good where we could learn perhaps how to better procure ppe Mm. Um, like one of the things i really pushed early on because i knew i knew this was an issue so the ffp3 masks that were so short of supply at the beginning of the pandemic are these sort of um, the medical ones? That the they... medical ones, yeah, the ones yeah. that are very close fit. They're actually built for industry. So, like, oh, they're really? built for building okay. and those sorts of things. They weren't built for necessarily medical use. Yeah, okay. So, the standard fit for those is of a Western man. Ah, right, okay, yeah. Um. So, some of the makes of them did not fit necessarily your 75% women Mm. NHS and healthcare staff and if you look at black Asian minority um, faces as well like so like my mum's she quite often would fail a fit test for the standard FFP3 mask wow that's her face is it's different shape it's not it's not built like a six foot western male it's you know she's got she's you know southeast Asian features Mm. which are a different shape to a western (laughs) six foot man um so there was a shortage of those sorts of ppe so it's incredibly important that if you get ppe that it fits correctly there were also examples where aprons were far too long for a lot of the nhs workers really wow. and these are these are inbuilt inequalities yeah. in a system and so there are lessons there that we learned really early on that could be for us to be prepared much sooner in the future and I don't think it is too soon to learn those sorts of lessons and there is a place and I think a very good space to hold where we could be doing something better and that's not political point scoring that is a case of collective decision making I think actually makes for much better decisions and outcomes in the end where we had seen Sage, and I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was no talk of social care, and there should have been, but that's because there wasn't the sorts of voices around there that actually deal with social care, and it's because it's seen as like the Cinderella service of 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 healthcare, and it shouldn't be. It should be a gold standard. Like I've worked as a care worker going into mm. people's homes, and you know, it's not the valued profession that it should be. It really should be so much more valued than it is. And the people that work in it are are brilliant. They're amazing. You don't do it for any glory or for any money. You do it because you want to and because you care. Oh, I completely Um, agree. You know, I I, I completely agree. Certainly sort of social care. I mean, social care is, I mean, it is very, it's a very difficult area. And probably, to be fair, consistent governments have struggled to to probably deal with it. The, The, you know, the department, of health has expanded to include it and that theoretically is meant to kind of I, if I, I remember off the top of my head there was a white paper I think a couple of months ago but it is one of those areas where you are completely right that, that it is staffed by people who are often undervalued uh, overworked and underpaid mm. um, and it, it wasn't something that was particularly uh, it wasn't really considered in the early days I imagine there are a variety of reasons for that I mean certainly sort of there was that sort of I don't think people really expected it to get this bad but then government advisors you know scientists and things like that you know I don't know it's I mean it's it's really sort of interesting sort of going back to something you, you just mentioned about the PPE not fitting different people's body shapes and sizes and things like that and I mean, for me, in no way, it's not a criticism to say that is the case. I mean, anyone running or managing an organization, a business or whatever, if they had someone someone turn to them and say, oh, this product's not quite working, they would say, right, well, we need to make sure it works for everybody. 
So it isn't criticizing the government or ministers or the NHS or anyone to say, this isn't quite working. We need to do this better. And, and, it, and it, you know, things like that, we have to be reflective. We have to be, you know, considering how we can make things better. And yes, there sometimes there are things like that are used for political point scoring. And, you know, that is unfortunately kind of, I suppose, in some ways, par for the course of political discourse. But at the same time, you know, underneath that, there, I, I hope, I mean, I'm not an MP myself, I hope there is a, a real kind of, I don't want to say maturity, because <laughs> I don't want to, I'm not criticising, but I, I hope underneath that there is a real kind of want to, to look things at things reflectively and, and try and make some things better. I, I think that, that depends on the politician, if yeah, I'm honest. That. Yeah, that like, surprised me, unfortunately. I, I've had mixed kind of experiences with people. Like when I have flagged that there was an issue, for example, about access to testing late last year, where people had contacted me and said, like, I really need a test. I can't get a test. They were people from all walks of life, predominantly, though, teachers, um, yeah. teachers, support staff. I had one vicar say wow. to me, you know, need a test, can't get hold of a test. And I raised this issue and I don't raise this issue because it's political point scoring. It's because people yeah. like it's a matter of life and death, quite frankly. If people need a test, they should be able to get a test. And at that point in the pandemic, they weren't. I raised that issue with Matt Hancock in, in the chamber. And if I'm honest, it felt like I was being gaslit because he just turned around and told me how many people had got a vaccine, uh, got a test in, in, in Luton that day. And I already knew how many people had got mm. a test. The point was that not everybody who needed a test yeah. could get one. So like, what's their options? And I find that incredibly frustrating that people who are plugged into the community who represent their area who could be part of the solution mm. and could be part of plugging some of the gaps actually were shut out and that has been true for the last year so we have not been able to even this roadmap out of out of lockdown you know it's leaked to the press before it comes to parliament mm. we really don't have any input or say and i think that this is a time for kind of actual more collective thinking because then you don't miss people like pregnant women, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, you don't miss ethnic minorities, black, Asian, minority, ethnic um, people or needs. You actually get a much broader range of views coming together with a better solution. Where we have done well, we have got a collective mm. way forward. Where things have bounced last minute, it's it just doesn't work as well. Because yeah. you have, like not all of the things have been thought about um and i think that that makes it really difficult particularly the situation with schools schools on two two or three days i think before they were to break up before christmas school leaders were then told that they were going to become vaccines uh, testing mm. the children <sighs> that's not kind of collaborative approach and the same and we've seen that time and time again so at the beginning of the pandemic dentists weren't even given the warning that they were to be reopened or could reopen really they found out at the exact wow. same time as the public found out wow i mean that's just i yeah i mean i i i, I do i completely agree and again you know part of politics is i think that, that a collaborative approach when we're in a situation like this is the best way of doing things because as you you're completely right one person's a group of people's perspective is inevitably going to miss certain things and therefore why not open it out it, it, opening up it's not a sign of weakness it's not a sign of a lack of leadership or whatever it is a sign of being considering all the options and and having those plans in place and I, I do think you're completely right um there is a I mean we I guess you know we 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 are at the end of the day and not to sort of requote uh, another politician uh, you know we are all in this together and therefore there is that need to be reaching out and particularly for that kind of that, that grassroots intelligence of what's going on on the ground mm. because as you know as you, you know you've listed a couple of examples of you know dentists and teachers and things like that I would hope I don't know but I would hope that I mean clearly in the case of the dentists that wasn't the case but uh, in the case of the teachers I would hope there would be some sort of liaison with the unions and things like that because they're the ones who politics aside actually know what's going on on the ground and when you're making decisions which are ultimately going to affect real people that that has to be taken into account one would hope clearly that isn't always the case <laughs> but it's yeah I, I i can see i mean it, it's great to see and you know we've i mean we've covered so much and it's great to, to 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 hear your passion for this and i think you know i think it's it's something which i hope maybe i'm not again i'm probably naive i'd hope that 
other MPs and uh, politicians share that passion for, for helping people and making a difference. But clearly there is a need for that reflection and that, that, that consideration of like, we, I, I'm a former teacher, lifelong learning. There is nothing wrong with saying I made a mistake and taking responsibility and moving on. I'm a fundamental believer in that. And I think actually the majority of people out there would have a similar view in some ways. But is that coming through in how kind of political decisions are being made? I'm not sure. Uh, and I think that's where things break down. But uh, one thing, I mean, I know we, we've covered so much and I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. But one thing I did want to just touch on, because obviously it relates to the the sort of the original reason that, uh, that you uh, very kindly agreed to be on the podcast was about your work tackling racism and hate crime. And now you're the, the chair of the APPG for hate crime, if that's I, I, I hope I think I've got the, the letters right there. Co-chair. Um, co-chair. The I, I yeah. so, um, there's a, a conservative lord who's the other chair. So could you just give us an idea? What, what, what does the APPG do and what, you know, what kind of how, how was how have you been with your colleagues sort of tackling racism and hate crime? So we've just started the work because I, I became um, co-chair at the end of the year. Okay. So we have planned out our work for the future. We've met, we've, we've agreed as a, as a APPG that we would look at hate crime increases over the pandemic. Because hate crime across the board, no matter you know, which protected characteristic mm. you fall under, has increased to the highest level ever wow. during the pandemic. And I think you know, it's pretty obvious why some groups have mm. been targeted, but it doesn't make necessarily sense, I think, across the board. So what we want to do is some outreach work. And what we are doing right now is, is some outreach work um, to find out what it is and where it's coming from and what levels of support people have reached or had barriers um, reaching. And because we know people find it challenging to get that level mm. of support outside of a pandemic. One of the worrying concerns that I have is that particularly hate crime, um, racially motivated hate crime, mm. when reported to the police, I've had, I've had a few instances where people just said that the police weren't taking it very seriously. And that might be a deeper rooted problem, or it could be a more immediate problem of the pandemic, that they mm. are overstretched or that they are pushed in other position, uh, other priorities at the moment. So I will be reaching out to take forward some of those cases um, much more specifically because they are more immediate. But as, a, as an APPG, that is the first piece of work that we will be looking at. The second piece of work is around online harms. So we spend more of our life, we've talked about it mm, online, yeah. because we can't go out and see people. Yep. But it's not exactly a safe or happy space for people. No, 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 I, I think you're completely right there. And I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I should sort of clarify for, for, I was about to say viewers, but listeners, we at Meridian Wellbeing with our partners, the Chinese Association for Tower Hamlets, amongst many other organizations across the country, have been running a, uh, a project, which is London-wide, to support vulnerable individuals and raise awareness of anti-Chinese and anti-Southeast Asian hate crimes and racism that have come about since the pandemic. And you're completely right. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at a couple of my notes here, and I remember in one of our uh, articles that we were, we follow along when we're sort of writing up things for, for our website was a stat about the a 300% increase in anti-Chinese hate crimes in the first part of 2020. So that's almost even before things really kicked off and got into gear. And I mean, 300% is just insane. And I hate to think what it is now. Um, and you, and to go back to your point, yep, yeah, social media. Um, it is, it, you know, it's a fantastic tool. It can give people a voice, but at the same time, it can be a very toxic environment. Oh, it can be a really hateful space. And people are weaponizing the um, pandemic for their own political agendas for their yes. own agenda they prey on people's fears they prey on people's doubts people's concerns and some of the concerns are legitimate but what they do is exploit those concerns they do not seek to relieve them they do not seek to help they pretend to listen they pretend to speak on behalf of the people that are voiceless and it is just not true what they are doing is seeking to divide and spread hatred for their own political gain or for their own uh, economic gain mm. quite frankly um I've spoken to YouTube, to, to Facebook um, about their ways that they are trying to make it a better place. But I think that there is a lot more work that can be done. For example, it's been brought to my attention that underneath Boris Johnson's um, kind of Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year message on Facebook is just comment after comment of racist attack. And it shouldn't be left up there. It shouldn't. No, no it shouldn't. It, I mean, it's also in, I mean, just on a professional level, whoever's doing PR, his PR and comms, I mean, it, 
it doesn't look great but on it a human level it's disgusting that that was that's there absolutely disgusting it is. And there is, I think, and we talked about it in the session that I joined um, Meridian and before that, I think we all have a duty mm. to to be able to speak in a responsible manner when we are criticising governments or different states across the world, that we criticise the government, we criticise the state, we do not criticise the people. Yeah. Because quite often the people are being affected by a state's actions as well. And what we saw with Donald Trump, and I really hope that we move kind of past this and we have a much mm. better rhetoric around it, was just a blaming of people. Yes. And, you know, that is really reflected. If people see their leaders doing it, it starts to seep into the mainstream media. It becomes kind of common like language, common belief. Yeah. It doesn't take long. Conspiracy theories spread very quickly along uh, on the internet. And before you know it, you have people le le feeling legitimized to behave in a certain way against people. And that is, you know, not, not acceptable. It's not the way that we should be behaving. And a lot of it is born out of fear. Mm. And so I think that when it comes to the online harms bill, that, you know, we have to be a lot tougher with um, sites that allow allow hate speech, allow that to be a part of tool that enables people to commit hate crimes because it is a big part of big part of the problem. Yeah, you you're completely right. Um the I mean I think unfortunately it, it is far too easy not only for individuals to to do things and say things and get away with it on social media and I guess websites and things as well, but one only has to do a sort of cursory search of various sort of not even necessarily sort of controversial topics on social media and you'll find just some vitriol which is just unbelievable I mean I remember I mean relatively recently just looking at a post about some uh, migrants who'd been picked up on a boat off the coast uh, off the southeast coast and this had just been reported in a local newspaper on their Facebook and you just have a look at I don't know why I do this but just have, having a cursory glance at some of the comments it's just unbelievable mm. un absolutely unbelievable what people will put their names to and say about some individuals who regardless of one's you know belief about uh, opinions on refugees and things like that, individuals who probably at the end of the day just wanted a better life now sort of conversations about immigration obviously aside you know individuals who were probably no who aren't any different from those who are saying disgusting things about them you know their families they've got brothers and sisters and grandkids and all this sort of thing and yet it's it's appalling and as I said you know we, we met, talked about already you know social media is and the internet is a a real kind of ability to give kind of often vulnerable people a real voice which is a great thing but it can be so nasty and so and bring out the worst in individuals I suppose it's not sort of quite the same thing but it's almost analogous to when we're sort of with you know you're in the car and you're driving and you feel sort of invulnerable somewhat which you really shouldn't do I don't feel that so much anymore but particularly when you're younger but it's just magnified and what it's people think is you know think they can say and stuff like that. it's unbelievable and I mean particularly I mean we've talked about it and I don't want to particularly um individuals in you know in positions of uh, sort of the public positions where um you know some of the vitriol that's been thrown against uh, or Diane Abbott for a yeah. prime example regardless of one's political views or thoughts about Diane Abbott but some of the things that are said about her just unbelievable absolutely yeah. unbelievable absolutely you know. vile like so we have a black Asian minority ethnic PLP kind of WhatsApp group and you see it it happens to uh, men but it happens predominantly more to black Asian minority ethnic um, women MPs of any party the level of abuse the the things that people feel free to say uh, and the way that even so even without like overt kind of racist or like aggressive things it's the microaggressions mm. it's the patronizing it's the like it's just we must be able to do a lot better than we currently are because if we want to see a more diverse and more inclusive representation it needs to be a good space to do that and currently it isn't always and you do need a tough tough skin to I think to, to currently do this or a very mm. very good support network around you or both yeah. frankly but I think I think things are changing one of the things that I've noticed when I've visited schools and when I've seen young people there is such and it's the thing that gives me hope because I think we do need hope right now is there is such a value on kindness mm -hmm. that there wasn't when we were growing up. Kindness was seen as like a soft thing. But actually, I think sometimes the hardest thing and the strongest thing is to be kind, even when you don't understand where the other person is coming from or you don't understand the other person's experience. Or sometimes you don't understand 
the person's reaction to something. But what I've seen every time I visit a school, there is this kind of underlying push for kindness. And I really hope that the future generations kind of bear that out because what we currently see, what I see Diane go through, what I see Dawn Butler go through, mm. it's just awful. What I see Apsana go through as well in, in Tower Hamlets, it's just, it's just, it's just unacceptable. Charlotte as well, Charlotte Nichols in Warrington as a as a young Jewish woman. It's just just awful. Just awful. And it, yeah, and sometimes like I hate the fact that my mum's joined Twitter this last year because she has to see some of the things that people say about me. And mm. I, I, nine times out of 10, it doesn't really bother me. Sometimes, like, it does bother me. And sometimes I just find it genuinely hilarious that somebody wants to have a go at me about my eyebrows or, like, just something ridiculous. But I don't, I don't want my friends and family seeing just people saying horrible things. And they shouldn't have to. But similarly, the owner shouldn't... And I think this is the problem with a lot of the reporting systems... And how people can be allies is if you see something that is not acceptable on the internet, please feel free to report it. Do not leave it to the person that Mm. is being wronged. Because at the moment, that person, Diane and Diane's team, for example, will report stuff. And I report stuff and block stuff. But if it's about you or if it's about them or if it's about somebody that you care about, that's awful. Um, Because they have to relive it. They have to read it. Firstly, they have to report it and say why it's offensive. And then a few weeks later or a few days later, they might get a report back from the social media company saying why it has or hasn't passed their kind of tests for removal. And that's quite an elongated process and quite a painful process, depending on what what the issues are. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I didn't go into public life with any kind of rose tinted glasses about it at all. Um, and it's fine for me, but when it crosses a line and affects my family or affects my friends, and I watch other MPs do it, you know, it's just it's just awful. That's an awful thing. And I it completely should... agree. I completely agree. And I think that there is, as you said, to go back to the, the you know the first thing you said there, which is we need more kindness. Mm-hmm. We need, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, what, what you said is so true. We need more kindness, and I do hope it. It finds its way forward, uh, you know, for, for the subsequent generations. There is more kind of consideration about other people because I think you're completely right. And I have absolute uh, respect for for any individual, regardless of party, who puts himself forward to be uh, uh, for a political office because it is a very difficult job. Uh, and all the kind of, you know, the, the nonsense in the media and the kind of lurid stories and things like that are nothing compared to the hard work that, that MPs and councillors and everyone else does day after day. And they're, all their team do every day um supporting so many people and yet having to put up with disgusting disgusting um accusations and comments and everything else and uh, and i i i sincerely wish that that we that we as as a society that's probably too broad but you know we we can we can actually think of other people as being human like us having family and aspiration aspirations and dreams and actually thinking again where we're going to post something horrible about them you know criticism is one thing but when you're just you know saying horrendous things particularly as you said about women or you know uh, individuals from minorities and things like that i mean why they are no different from you they are have their hopes and dreams and families and grandkids would you want your child or grandchild to know what you've just said about that person i don't know i I, I think i I think criticism is absolutely fine and you know i'm always open for criticism and my team also know that like they can if i if they think i'm going down a wrong route or if they think i've got something wrong like i, I always want to surround my pe- myself with people that will quite happily tell me if they think i'm you know going down the wrong track or if what i've said or how i'm approaching something could be could be better but i think criticizing people for things that they cannot change about themselves mm. is fundamentally wrong i can't change the fact that i'm mixed race i can't change the fact that i am this age and i cannot change the fact that i am who i am so don't criticize me for those things yeah. no i'm 164 centimeters tall telling me that i'm too short isn't going to make me grow any more but like fine have have a go at me at uh, about any of my my policies or like mm. policy areas that's absolutely fine anything else it's just it's just not it's not okay and like you say i think you're right like would you want your kid hearing that would you yeah. want your grandkid hearing that if you're not happy to say it to somebody's face as well like that's the other thing a lot of these criticisms come from people who are anonymous yeah online yeah yeah, I, I, I'm very much a believer. If, if you're going to say something, you nail your colours to it. You say, you put your name to it because otherwise, clearly, you know, you know it's wrong. You know, I, it's you know, wrong. I, there should also be space. Like I listened to a podcast last night, Boy George and Louis Theroux. 
Oh. I love the Grounded podcast. I love a good podcast. Um, and, That's always good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Boy George had said, like, because he's outrageously outrageously spoken, could be really pointed, could mm. probably just cut anyone down. And he said that, like, he's not above the next day going, oh, that was a bit over the mark, and removing it and apologising. Like, that would be a nice space to be. You don't have yeah. to dig it, dig your heels even, even further if you think, actually, I've got something wrong. Yeah. I, com- I completely agree. I think, yeah, I mean, I imagine everybody's been in a place where they've had a glass of wine too many and got into an argument but the next day you're like I'm really sorry I said that or you know I you know I yeah you know, what you know and that I completely agree I think that's the right place to be in where we can actually we can be adults we can reflect and think okay well, maybe maybe I've got that wrong what do you think and that doesn't and we don't see that as weakness we don't see it and I think it goes back to kind of what we began talking about at the beginning of the, of the episode which was about being reflective and listening to other people's opinions and looking for that kind of diverse range of opinions and views and not seeing that as being weak or being a lack of leadership or whatever you know I really hope that as a society moving forward we we can take more of that on board and hopefully it means that when we are in a grand way when we're developing public policy or whatever we can think about the whole person and think of them as people not numbers and when we're treating when we're you know communicating or whatever with other people we can think that actually you know they've got kids they've got grandkids they've got mums and dads and sisters and brothers do i really want to say this or do i really want to do that and maybe maybe things would be a bit better i don't know <laughs> i would hope so i would hope so but i think that kindness and respect are, are things that seem to have gone out of fashion at some stages throughout like our, it's cyclical I was going to say, fashions are cyclical. Fashions. I mean, you know, I was all about the new romantics when I was a teenager and I was about 15 years too late. Oh, I was <laughs> like hair grunge. and everything. I was a little grunge rocker. Very nice. Um, yeah. I wasn't like full goth, but there was a stage where I would like only wear trousers and black. Um, it's, a good, it's a good colour. It's a good colour, apart from when you're I mean, in really hot locations. Yeah, it's easy. You know, it matched. Everything matched, so it was fine. <laughs> and it went with everything, so, you know, it's yeah. perfect. I'd just like to thank the fantastic uh, Sarah Owen, MP for Luton North, for being such a fantastic guest. It was just an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And your your passion and how empowering you are, I think, is just a real inspiration. And for me, really gives me hope that things are going to be better and also that it revitalises that kind of belief that I have that the majority of people who've become MPs do it for the right reasons and do it because they want to make a difference so I just really want to thank you Sarah for coming on today thank you and thank you so much for inviting me and for this time and all the work that you and your team at Meridian are doing because for all the reasons that we've discussed it's it's so needed and it's so needed now and I yeah I will jump at every opportunity to support the work that you're doing in any way that I can thank you so much so that's the episode done thank you very much for joining us my name is Chris Hartley and that was the word on well-being thank you and goodbye